The journey of a thousand beetles begins with a single podcast. Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky. I am joined once again by my <laughs> my two musketeers, uh, Sam and Leon. How's it going? Could not be happier. There's a thousand beetles now. The last time I checked, there were like seven. Yeah, well, <laughs> of course, Lord Woodbine was the sixth, and then there are a lot of fifths. Uh, <laughs> yeah, as we're given to understand. Yeah, the, it adds up. The, you you give them an inch and they take a mile. As we're finding, they're really nickel and dime you. It's a journey of a thousand beetles because the more we go on this journey, the more beetles we discover. Is that right? Basically, yeah. I mean, th- there it, there could be a good chance that we discover some more beetles today as we <laughs> listen through their first album. Please, please me. I hope we do. Jesus Christ. But first, uh, we're going to do our standard ritual um, <clears throat> where we begin with a few riddles for teens. So excited. I've been waiting all month. All this time. All this uh, ten weeks or whatever. Um, so let's see. We left off with a creepy question, which took us to a couple of Halloween riddles, and this was uh, around Halloween the last time we did this so here's our first one while a cat was outside it started to downpour what? <laughs> it sounds like you can it sounds like it's really trying to trip you up and it kind of isn't but just to say while a cat was outside <laughs> mm-hmm. It started to downpour. Okay. So, the cat couldn't find any shelter and got completely soaked by the rain. Yet. Yet. Not a single hair was wet. How could it be? Its skin was wet. (laughs) Yeah, this is a hairless cat. Well. Sphinx. Let's find out. (laughs) These have to be some of the oddest-looking animals around. If your teen has never seen one... (laughs) Oh my god. Google image it, and you'll be laughing your hair off. I was joking. (laughs) Now, if if your teen has never seen a hairless cat, and therefore completely... Completely bungles this riddle. Just has <laughs> no chance of getting it. That's how you resolve that. That's how you resolve that. Here's the thing. There's nothing that brings people together quite like giggling over odd things. <laughs> is there? This is no. This is this podcast, actually. Yeah, we giggle over odd things, don't we? Yeah, it's the spite that brings all of us closer. <laughs> That's right. We need to sit in the seat of scorners if we want to be a community. Yeah, we're uh, you know cleaning in the in the scorners of the house, uh, which is a reference to one of last time's riddles. It was a hairless cat. <laughs> it was okay. Yeah, <laughs> it was a hairless cat. It was a cat. <laughs> 
I just got the 101 short jokes that are easy to remember uh, pop up again. Easy to remember? Easy to remember. How easy are they? <laughs> well, <laughs> let's not find out. Let's not and say we did. You're in a dark room with a box of matches. Uh-huh. Nearby are three things. A candle, an oil lamp, and a log of firewood. Which do you light first? The match. <laughs> hmm. That's one way of looking at it. Do we have any other guesses? Um, well, I, uh, I turn on the light switch. Mm. And I <laughs> you light the oil first and blow the place sky high. Yeah. The solution isn't always as complicated as it first appears. This riddle is worded so that you focus on the three things, but there's actually a fourth thing your teen is probably forgetting. My teen is probably forgetting. While they decide which object is better to light first, they're overlooking that all three objects first require a lit match. And then, for no reason, in this same paragraph, these are 11 of the most famous riddles in history. Link to another article. <laughs> oh, Yes. Do you think it would behoove us to look at some of the most famous riddles in history? Ah, uh, yeah, we should. Yeah, just a little bit. How the answer many? to this The answer to this one was the match. There's 11, but 11 we of to... them. <laughs> if we're really feeling it, we can go through them all, but we don't have to. I can think of like four off the top of my head that are probably in there. We'll see. The first of the most famous riddles of all time. There is a house. One enters it blind and comes out seeing. What is it? The house of a really excellent televangelist. Optometrist. This this the riddle comes from ancient Sumer, I should say. So. Oh, okay. So probably not the optometrist. <laughs> probably not the optometrist. Uh, Hammurabi's optometrist. <laughs> that was right. It was Hammurabi's optometrist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought so. You see, even 4,000 years ago, people tested one another's critical thinking skills with riddles and logic puzzles. This ancient civilization, located in what is today the country of Iraq, left us with one of the earliest known examples of a written riddle. Here's the oh. riddle. There is a house, one enters a blind with a and what is it? Answer. Do we have any other guesses? Um, I, I do. Um, lens crafters. <laughs> A school. It's the value of education! It is. The Sumerians knew it. This one comes from the Bible. This one comes sent to us from the Bible. Alright. <laughs> Thanks, the Bible. Bring it on, God. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. This is not a fucking Bible. Uh, what is uh, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory? Mm. Well. Out of the what? Something to eat? Out of the eater. As in the one who eats something to eat. Out of the strong something sweet. This is not... That does, that, that's an English language rhyme. That's... <laughs> it's a translation. Oh, bullshit. Okay. Here's the story, and then we'll see if we have any answers. In the book of Judges, the seventh book in the Old Testament, Samson poses a riddle to his 30 dinner guests. He tells them that if they answer correctly, he'll give them 30 expensive pieces of clothing, but if they guess wrong, they must give him expensive clothing. The catch 
the riddle was rigged. The guests wouldn't have known the answer because only people who Samson personally had any hope of solving it. And I guess Samson's 30 dinner guests didn't know him personally. So you certainly shouldn't break your brain trying to figure it all out, but here it is. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. So, uh, who among us knows Samson personally and can answer this riddle? This is a riddle about cannibalism. Out of the eater, something to eat. Bees making a honeycomb inside the carcass of a lion. <laughs> That's nasty! <laughs> of course. Well, duh. Yeah, clearly the answer. Uh-huh. Yeah, I do. duh. Yeah. Yeah, no shit. Sometime before the feast, Samson had killed a lion with his bare hands and returned to find bees building a hive. That shit's fucked up. Well, can you see why Samson's guests felt cheated? Yeah. I cool. feel cheated. Cool. Here's a, here's a classic from Sophocles. What goes on four legs in the morning, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening? Oh. Yeah, I thought so. Um, a book. <laughs> Your mom. And your mom is the answer. <laughs> uh, th- this is probably the most famous riddle. I'm of not reading. Time. I don't. I don't know why I'm even. <laughs> this, it, it comes from Oedipus Rex, which it, uh, now I'm am reading is one of the most famous pieces of literature of all time. So it makes sense that it gave us one of the most famous riddles of all time. That is in the text. Hey. We solved Reader's Digest riddle. Okay, we're done with the historical riddles. Let's go back to the Yeah, these suck ass. Yeah, these aren't for teens. These aren't even for teens. They're not for te- they're not teen oriented. They're not teeny enough, and we need to solve the Beatles riddle for teens. Get us back on the teen stuff. Oh, I'm getting there. This vehicle is spelled the same from the front as well as from the back. Submarine. <laughs> Oh, uh, race mobile. <laughs> I, auto. I That's it. Auto. Auto. Oh, German. Auto is a good answer. Uh, I can't wait to find out why this is a riddle. This is one of the most challenging riddles for T. <laughs> no! <laughs> well, I guess it I isn't. haven't... I guess I haven't asked a team. <laughs> God. We gotta find a team. We need a team on this show. We need something that'll appeal to Gen Z. Found a team. Although there are many words that are palindromes, spelled the same backwards and forwards, teens will have fun trying to come up with one that's specifically a vehicle. <laughs> Not like it's one of the more textbook examples of a palindrome. <laughs> Make us find a palindrome that's like a vegetable or something. This riddle might actually give them a bit more appreciation for the English language. No! <laughs> no. But it might. It's just the word race car. It's just the word race car, but what if it made them get more appreciation for the English language? You know, if you if this happens to you, I'm I'm happy for you, that's all. I hope you appreciate. Oh yeah. Let's do one more. Let's let's. What can go up a chimney down, but cannot go down a chimney up? Santa Claus. (laughs) (laughs) I know my properties. Smoke. This 
one's this one ain't bad. You guys are getting there. I'll read it one more time. What can go up a chimney down, but cannot go down a chimney up? Um, the house burns down, <laughs> making the chimney up by comparison. <laughs> the chimney's relatively up. <laughs> but it cannot fit all of the burned down bricks and ashes all the way down the chimney through the top again. Mm-hmm. What can oven the cold food? <laughs> a ghost. Um, orphans. Orphan boys. If they're stuck, just say, Mary Poppins. Is it orphan boys? <laughs> Tell me it's orphan boys, please. <laughs> Your teen might recall watching the movie as a kid. And how after she pops out of the top of the chimney, her umbrella opens up. What? What? An umbrella can go up a chimney while it's down, but when it's up, it can't go down a chimney. This is up and down to refer to the status of the umbrella. This no one ever has. This is riddles for teens who think about Mary Poppins like all the fucking time. Well, oh. you have to you have, you have to feed them the line Mary Poppins, and then they'll think about it. But <laughs> feed them a nanny, and they'll great. understand. Yeah, but so <laughs> yeah, the up umbrella and the down umbrella. <laughs> it's no one ever, and just to. <laughs> To start with that, and then, like, why? I guess because of Mary Poppins, that's why it's a chimney, but, like, because otherwise, one can go up a chimney down. I don't know what fucking Mary Poppins centric vacuum this line of logic would ever occur to any human person. No. Right. Right. Let's talk about the Beatles. Let's. Please, God. We'll go through our clues that we have so far and uh, maybe pick up where we left off. Do I have the old... No. Okay. So, our first clue from our first episode. Quarrymen, old before our birth, straining each muscle and sinew. How do we feel about that? Very good. Strongly positive. I would agree. This line now makes itself known in my head frequently in my daily life, and <laughs> I like to thank you for that. I always think about how you sort of, how Sam sort of gave uh, an idea of what the song might sound like. <laughs> it's like straining yeah. muscle and you. And in our second episode, uh, we were led down a rabbit hole revealing inconsistencies in the official story of what happened on September 11th, 1962. Yeah. Whatever happened that day, it led in one form or another to the Beatles' first album, their debut studio album, Please Please Me, which was released on Parlophone on the 22nd of March, 1963 in the UK. And, uh, didn't have an official U.S. release until much later, as I understand it. So, 
Would that it never did. Uh, would that it were so simple. So the reason this album came to be is because nationwide interest in the Beatles was bigger than ever after the huge success of their debut singles, Love Me Do slash P.S. I Love You and Please Please Me slash Ask Me Why. Consequently, their record producer, George Martin, urgently needed 10 more tracks <laughs> to put on the album. I really wish they just ran for, like, Prime Minister instead yeah, ra- of making 10 new tracks. <laughs> Rather than, they were just like, let's see. Nationwide interest in the Beatles is at an all-time high. Let, let's elect the Beatles Prime Minister. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, they should have made a film about that when they were making films. Yeah. Uh, it weren't so simple. I, I asked them what they had, which we could record quickly, and the answer was their stage act. Martin considered recording live at the Cavern Club, but on deciding the venue was unsuitable for live recording, <laughs> a session was booked at EMI Studios. Martin said it was a straightforward performance of their stage repertoire. A broadcast, more or less, initially a morning and afternoon session were booked, and they had to, like, on-the-fly book an evening session. This was a single 13-hour session in which, th- like, all but those four singles was recorded. Damn! Me doing all my homework for the semester in one night. That's right. They started at 10 a.m. and they finished at 10:45 p.m. Ooh. And you can tell. Yeah, the day ended with twist and shout, which had to be recorded last because John Lennon had a bad cold, <laughs> and Martin feared the throat treading vocal would ruin his voice for the day. I've always thought it sounded a little froggy. It does sound pretty froggy. It's a little, a little frogful. I gotta say, and. uh I guess that's why and they just they just run with it to this day. <laughs> you know, the version he recorded with that recorded with that cold. He recorded with that cord. The performance caught on the first take prompted Martin to say, "I don't know how they do it. We've been recording all day, but the longer we go, the better they get." Did they? It's cuz he was really tired that his perception was altered, etc. Yeah, he was extremely intoxicated by this point. (laughs) Uh, The song Hold Me Tight was also recorded during the session, but proved, quote, surplus to requirements and was not included on the album. I don't know where that... Requirements? (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to make a note of that. I don't know who said that quote. It seems like sort of dangling in here. Hold on. Uh, Oh, my God. Yeah, I guess someone said it was surplus to requirements. Uh, let's see. The whole day's session cost approximately 400 pounds, which was equivalent to 8,600 pounds as of 2020. What? Actually, but like, that's the thing, is the, the quote from here, there wasn't a lot of money on the phone. I was working on an annual budget of 55,000 pounds, which, you know, sure, if you're managing a bunch of artists, it's, it's you know, a lot of money has to go into that, but, like, Relatively speaking, the Beatles collected like two hundred fifty dollars in 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 modern money for each three hour session that they booked, and it was like ten to one, two thirty to five thirty, seven thirty to ten thirty. So they like e- each of them earned six hundred dollars <laughs> from that day of recording. Oh my god. Let's see. The album was recorded on a two-track BTR tape machine with most of the instruments on one track and the vocals on the other. <laughs> Remember that one time we listened to Drive My Car with the different channels? Yeah. 
yeah, they all sort of had that uh, that thing about them. You know, they did the mono mix with those put together, but there was a, a stereo mix with those made that was just one track on the left channel and the other on the right channel. <laughs> the, okay, the two tracks generally divided the instrumental track from the vocals with the exception of Boys, in which the close proximity of Ringo's drum to his vocal microphone placed the drums on the vocal channel. <laughs> This is really brilliant sound engineering going on here. Good, good stuff. Well, let me get this straight. They divided the vocals and the instrumentals across stereo channels. Yes, they had a, a two-track tape machine. They recorded them on different tracks, and then for the stereo version, they uh, <laughs> had uh, each track in a different stereo channel. So Just yes, a straight was- split? A pretty much straight split, except oh. for when for when Ringo's vocal mic was close to his drums. That's not good. <laughs> it's pretty bad. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like unsettling. Let's get into the album. Let's get into it. Let's get into it and give our thoughts. Our first track that we are going to listen to is uh please please me so let me see if i can use this uh which we already listened to last week but we're gonna give it another go so here's the thing that's actually the seventh track on the album and i made a mistake <laughs> oh, thank you a little oh, preview fine. for all of us all fine yeah we can do it out of order we can just uh splice that back in but um Come on. Come on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I do I, I think I think the come on part is very fun. It's very fun. <laughs> really shake out the lyrics. Uh w- what what I had brought up the last time we talked about this song is that it's about uh oral <laughs> and not and uh a girl not reciprocating oral. Right. Yeah. Well, why do I doubt that these guys had that problem, though? <laughs> Doesn't track for you. Right? Um, I mean... Um, every week I have this question, and every week I don't get it answered, and my question is, why do people like the Beatles? Well, mm-hmm. I guess that's part... I guess that's part of the riddle for teens that we are that we're looking to. Why the fuck are the Beatles? Yeah, there are a lot of things I think for which it is at least often said that they uh, popularized sounds that you know to to a modern audience are sort of everyday. But to be fair, this is the Beatles album that Beatles fans will generally say is not very good. Okay. It's um, not very good. <laughs> it's not very good. That that thing we were talking about a moment ago about the stereo track being oh, completely yeah. split. Yeah, <laughs> going in the right ear. Yeah, pretty bad. <laughs> this is the 09 remaster we listened to. <laughs> so the 09 demaster. Yeah, they mastered it less. The 09 mono mix. The 09 mono myth. <gasps> hmm. <laughs> Beatles Journey. Beatles Journey. The journey of a thousand Beatles. <gasps> journey of a thousand <laughs> Beatles to find the monolith. The monolith. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
at Monmouth, which I think is a place. This is also the song for which it was said that the original version was very dreary and slow, and it was meant to be a ballad, and they just sort of... Oh, no. Juiced it up? It needed the juicing. Yeah. No, it needed to be so dry. It needed pulping. (laughs) I wonder if there's anything else to be said. I mean, there is the, like... The backup vocals, uh, I don't want to sound complaining, but you know there's always rain in my heart, and then some other Beatles say, in my heart, in the background. I like when the other Beatles kick in. The the other Beatles, yeah. We, we The more Beatles, the, the better. <laughs> I think. Just the more people they got. The better the Beatler. Oh, that's why there have to be a thousand. We're the trying harmony. to make the best Beatles. Yeah, yeah. we're trying to <laughs> give that thousand-part harmony. We're always talking about. Let's go on to the actual first song of the album, which is SR standing there. Oh no. <laughs> One, two, three, five. Man. Yeah. The first line of the Beatles discography. Well, she was just seventeen. And you know what I mean? Oh. Wow. What did they? Well, that's the thing. The I I have a quote from uh, I think it's I, I think it's John Lennon giving this quote from uh, later talking about the song. Apparently, Paul had tried to come up with like a rhyme for seventeen and wasn't really doing it, and he pitched, "You know what I mean," and it stuck. His quote here is, "Which was good because you don't know what I mean." <laughs> oh, I Beatles really wish you, I really wish he would have tried and failed to explain himself, and then disappeared off the face of the earth in shame. Yeah. I... Um, originally titled Seventeen. No! (laughs) (laughs) That was conceived by McCartney when driving home from a Beatles concert in Southport, Lancashire, as a modern take on the traditional song, As I Roved Out. Damn, he saw the Beatles live? He saw the Beatles, yeah. was so inspired that he wrote the first Beatles song <laughs> called 17. Um, McCartney was writing lines for the song during a visit to, to London with his then-girlfriend Celia Mortimer, who was 17 at the time herself. How old was he? He was 20. Mm. It's the Beatles. Uh. Once again, I'm asking, hey, hey why do people like the Beatles? Yeah. So. (laughs) (laughs) McCartney says that he uh, took the bass riff from Talking About You by Chuck Berry and just sort of threw it in there. I played exactly the same notes as he did. (laughs) Is his quote. Yeah. (laughs) And it shows. Yeah. Uh, mm. Even now, when I tell people I find few of them believe me, therefore I maintain that a bass riff hasn't got to be original. Okay. They're flattering you, you're a beetle! <laughs> He's a beetle! <laughs> so that was, well, from what I recall, which is not much, uh, if I'm being fully honest, it was just kind of like a basic blues progression. Mm. Like a normal one. Yeah. <laughs> this man just 100% fell for his own dick riders, though. Like, that's that's yeah. not... Yeah, he pinched it. Come on. 
Yeah, so that that quote about, which is good because you don't know what I mean from Paul and what John Lennon said, is that's Paul doing his usual good job of producing what George Barton used to call a pot boiler. Yeah, Ooh. that makes sense. It's kind of a pot boiler. Now, what's this? This this is a riddle. Yeah, I mean, hey, hey, let's get pot boiler on the board there. I mean, that that. Uh... Oh, a pot boiler. Is this a variety of dumpling? Yeah, this really fills <laughs> my pot. It's a pot stuffer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now this next tune is a real pot sticker. Guitar solo. George does a little. I should be in quotation marks. <laughs> guitar solo. <laughs> Guitar solo. So low. <laughs> Guitar so low. Below uh, they stole it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, these low life. New riddle. <laughs> We're making connections. We're making it's, just, uh, it's the guitar that they stole in Hamburger somewhere. Oh, they did the, they of did. the club, yeah. They stole a guitar on the way to Hamburg, and then they stole a guitar when they were uh, doing this Star Search thing with the Canadian Impresario. They were about yeah, to win. Yeah, the Canadian Impresario! They... Yeah, they were about to le- win, and they had another thing, so they walked out and John stole a guitar! <laughs> oh my god. Beatles morals so low. Uh, guitar so low. Let's put that in the notes, too. Even though it wasn't said by anyone. Um, so yeah, let's take a listen to uh, Misery. <laughs> oh a... yeah, that's all the songs. <laughs> yeah, let's have some more Misery. <laughs> what an outro. Wow. La la la. La la I la wish... la la la. <laughs> I really wish that song was another minute longer the whole time. They were just making increasingly fucking animalistic noises. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. Yeah, so the the piano part, right? That really cool little piano thing there? Cool. Uh-huh. I thought it was cool. I, yeah. So if you had to guess who played that... Okay, oh. who's the guy who made uh, Simply Having a Wonderful Christmas Time? Paul. I think that's him. Well, uh, if you guessed that it wasn't a beetle, <laughs> you'd be correct. It was. Uh, that was my. That guess. was my second guess. <laughs> <laughs> Just <laughs> the, the first thing that really uh, perked my ear up on this album, and I pretty quickly learned not uh, a, a beetle composition. But uh, yeah, other than that, I didn't think there was a lot going on with that song. I like it. It's nice. Yeah, sure. Nice? Okay. Here's the backstory. In February 1963, Helen Shapiro was Britain's most successful female singer, and the Beatles were fifth on the bill as part of her nationwide tour. <laughs> That's a lot of musicians <laughs> on one tour. Yeah, in the 60s. <laughs> it was the fucking, fucking Coachella over here. Her <laughs> artist and repertoire manager, Nori Paramore. What? His name is Nori N-O-R-R-I-E Paramore New kind of guy just dropped Uh, He was looking for material for a country album that she was planning to record that Helen Shapiro was going to do I was going to say, this sounded a little bit like going back to the Skiffle Roots a little bit with that jangly ass thing 
Yeah, so Helen Shapiro had planned to go to Nashville to record a country album and suggested that the Beatles make a song for her. <laughs> and did she? Uh, I don't think she did, but they did make the song. At the time, McCartney said, we've called it Misery, but it isn't as slow as it sounds. It moves along at quite a pace, and we think Helen will make a pretty good job of it. Quite a pace. <laughs> oh my god. They really just talked like that, didn't they? They did. <laughs> but Helen did not, did not do a good job of it, and so British singer and entertainer Kenny Lynch, who was on the same tour, recorded it instead, thus becoming the first artist to cover a Beatles composition this song misery uh the world is treating me bad misery i'm the kind of guy who never used to cry the world is treating me bad misery Insult anthem i lost it now for sure i won't see her no more it's gonna be a drag misery on the outro the, we we get the fade out as they are making their little noises miserable noises la, la, la. You you could see this as uh, <laughs> there are a couple things uh, to say about it. I, I, just the price I pay. <laughs> Destiny <laughs> calling me, and I'm in misery. It feels a little proto Weezer to me. Yeah, I I think the the thread I may be following here. I think because it is like a like a depressed kind of song and it's you know composed in this way and of this time it feels kind of beach boysy yeah yeah i think that's the that's the through line because the beach boys sort of vaguely pioneered the emo idea a little bit and then there's just sort of a, a tenuous line from them to weezer emo idea <laughs> emo consciousness i've had an emo idea <laughs> i've had an emo idea. New Jungian archetype just dropped emo. The next song is Anna, parentheses, go to him. Go to him. Go to him. <laughs> this is a religious song, would I be correct? Oh, we'll see. They're most Christian. I'm loving the continuous moaning in the background. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah the... Ghostly uh... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very ghostly, very haunted. Um, yeah. The background animals sound like he's falling down a well. Yeah. <laughs> and that jangly little thing with the guitar. With the guitar, yeah, that was a that, that was a, a distinctive phrase, is what it, it says in my. Yeah. So this is a cover. Oh, it's it's a cover of a song by Arthur Alexander, uh, a a great early soul figure who many of his songs are more known for their covers. Well, you win some, yeah. you lose some. You win some, you lose some. I guess this was uh, Paul doing the the backing vocals on this track, and George also. They sort of uh, gave it that <laughs> that little ghostly uh, wail. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's just I what they sound like. Colin. Check <laughs> <laughs> West. It's a. Uh... <laughs> But I think that, like, generally, this has been a pretty down 
like a pretty dour album. <laughs> yeah. Sinister. Yeah. <laughs> Haunting. Yeah. Kind of. The texture of a thick, slimy fog. Yeah, and you know, the cover is just these lads looking out over a balcony, you know, a- having a laugh. Down at you but... who have fallen. Yeah. Pushed? Question mark? Ooh. Pushed man. exclamation mark. <laughs> they, they got pushed down the well. Or you did. Mm-hmm. You, the listener, were the victim. Ah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, Anna. Oh, so this is a, a concept album about, well, something. <laughs> about you, the listener, being pushed down a well. <laughs> by, by the beetle. <laughs> a stairwell, it looks like. This is the mm. next got sold to One Direction kind of a scenario. Yeah, this was the, the beginning of that whole situation. Yeah, and I'm glad it is. I'm glad we got there. Down the well. <laughs> Down at the bottom of the well. Found what we were looking for. This next song is called Chains. <laughs> wow. A lot of bends in the vocals. It's it's like sort of a Semitic like tone <laughs> structure there. Yeah, sort of James. James. <laughs> and, and they ain't the kind that I, I can't even replicate how stretched out the and they ain't the kind that you can see line is. Yeah. Like, <laughs> what a what a bombastic opening to a song that is just the the most inane description of like a simple metaphor anyway chains of love (laughs) (laughs) and they (laughs) it's it's interesting how the the previous couple songs have been about like uh like a a breakup and these sort of this sort of misery one could say associated with that and now suddenly it's like oh being in love Suck. Yeah, man. It's it's <laughs> all all of it is about how much love sucks. I think. Yeah, it's a very morose listen so far. <laughs> the Beatles' goth album. Ooh. Emo. 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 Yeah, they they're pilots. They're flying. <laughs> they're it, in the airplane over the sea. God, I wish they were. This song is a cover. Oh, again. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It is uh, a cover of a song written by Carol King. Oh. What? Yeah. It was a hit for the American girl group The Cookies, 1962. Damn. It was uh, number 17 on the Hot 100, and the Beatles did their rendition the next year. Apparently this was like like every Liverpool band covered this song, and it, it was just like part of the repertoire of the scene. Yeah, none of them could the break Beatles, the chains of love. No, in keeping with the Beatles' uh, budget and time frame, lots of covers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. None of them could break the chains. <laughs> the chains. <laughs> like we all caught that one verse where he did say "break" with like a rolled R. <laughs> <laughs> we caught break. that. I think I did. Yeah. What happened there? I don't know. He burped. What happened? I'm not sure. <laughs> this is George on lead vocals on this one. 
Well, we can't expect too much. Yeah, he's just a little guy. You gotta take it easy on old Georgie. <laughs> Georgie Porgy put in pie. Music critic Ian McDonald criticized the Beatles' performance, writing that it was slightly out of tune. <laughs> slightly? Slightly. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, it, it, as we go from one track to the next, I'm increasingly feeling that uh, that that sort of morose hum. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's you sort know. of overtaking to listen. Yeah, it's sort of a oh. shoegaze album. <laughs> Damn, winkle picker gaze. What the fuck is the uh, what kind of shoes did oh, they wear okay. in England at the time? Yeah, what are they? <laughs> Chelsea gaze. Chelsea gaze. Oh. Martin. Who's to say? The next song is "Boys." Oh, boy. boys! Who run the world? Boy. <laughs> These Beatles really love their boys. They they certainly do. There, there's a lot to be said. Another uh, <laughs> another guitar laid so low. Uh, um, it's just sort of like <laughs> like there are pauses. Like he's like doing a couple guitar <laughs> things. Like hey, what if I did this? Yeah, I'm noodling around. Yeah, give it a they try. Figured out how music works. Anticipating the Grateful Dead, I think. Oh, for sure. You might have guessed this song is a cover. <laughs> Are there any that weren't? Well, the first couple. Uh, um, but uh, it was originally a Shirelle song. Oh, shit. It was uh, written by Luther Dixon and Wes Farrell. Uh, Pre-Ringo joining the band, Pete Best would sing this song uh, at their concerts. Pete Beast. Pete Beast. <laughs> Pete Beast. So this is Ringo. This is the first uh, recorded Beatles song that Ringo did, and he did uh, do a song on on each of their albums, as per their mysterious agreement. <laughs> their uh, <laughs> dark bargain. Their dark bargain. <laughs> I... Yeah, there was something distinctly gothic about the uh, the soundscape on this one. Yeah, but there's also the, you know, the bop shoe up, the bop bop shoe up. Uh, I, I, I just think that was pretty fun. There, I, I have multiple quotes from Paul McCartney talking about how they didn't think about the, the potential uh, gay subtext of them singing a song about boys. They didn't think about it? <laughs> That's what Paul loves to say. Uh, they did change some of the lyrics a bit, though, and they... Uh, they said, um, and it was great, though, if you think about it, here's us doing a song, and it was really a girl song. I talk about boys now, or it was a gay song, but we never even listened. It's just a great song. I think that's one of the things about youth. You just don't give a shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a youth. That's true. There, I mean, hey, maybe this is uh, a call out to the teens. The thing about youth is that you don't give a shit about their riddle. Wow. We also didn't really talk about the potential for the song that was originally going to be called 17 being some reference to the audience for the riddle. Oh, oh teens. teens. And that song is definitely sort of out of step with, again, this very melancholy 
uh, vibe that the album has otherwise had. <laughs> this one's a little more upbeat, but like, you know, something about starting with the one, two, three, four, and just the, you know, that was definitely a, a more rollicking song than anything else that's been on this record. I'm sort of looking back on it. And, and hold on, she was just 17, and you know what I mean. The riddle. Meaning, like, like from riddles. Yeah, meaning, like, from riddles. I love riddles. <laughs> We're just big fans of riddles on this pod. Um, yeah, I'm just, I'm going back to this song. It just, like, starts with a count, one, two, three, four. Starts and ends with a count. Oh. Okay. Those goth vibes come to full fruition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, hey, I saw her standing there could be, you know, feels like a direct call out to teens. And perhaps it's an element of the riddle. Yeah. This prophetic vision of a teen. Yeah, they, <laughs> they foresaw teens. Haters will see teens. Yeah, the first lines of boys. I've been told when a boy kiss a girl, take a trip around the world. Bop shoe up and bop bop shoe up. What? <laughs> That's what he's been told, because he obviously. Oh yeah, because all over this album we find that these men are injured. Yeah, <laughs> they haven't they haven't kissed any boys yet. Uh, this is the the line that's pointed out as having been changed is my girl says when I kiss her lips, kiss a thrill through her fingertips. Yes, I was like, uh, kiss my lips, thrill through my fingertips. Um, talk about boys, what a bundle of joy. All right, George, and then that guitar solo I talked about. <laughs> All right, George. George. The next song is called Ask Me Why. You know, I'd love to. Could be calling out for the riddle again, you know? Ask me why. Riddles. They just jingle on in. They're, they, they do jangle. They Listening to this whole album with no break with no breaks must feel like getting hit by a bus <laughs> little bit i imagine this one is not a cover it's something else entirely <laughs> it's hardly a song first of all the cover for this song uh is uh this is the u.s promotional single sleeve i'm reading here it's just text it says ask me why the beatles an ep that is selling like a single at single record prices. Here's your special DJ promotion copy. So. <laughs> what a wonderful bundle of esoteric terms and knowledge. Yeah. <laughs> this song was inspired by Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. The opening guitar phrase is lifted from the Miracles song, What's so about goodbye yeah. uh, something you might notice at this point is that even the original songs on this album are not so original <laughs> riddle me this the beatles uh plagiarism i'd like to return to my question why did people listen to the beatles instead of literally any anyone else at the time literally anybody else who was doing it correctly remember that thing i said about how like Twenty uh, percent of Britain's youths were in bands, skiffle bands, at the at the height of the skiffle thing. <laughs> like this was such a huge scene that the Beatles were a part of, <laughs> and that they were the ones who who came through is nuts. 
Yeah, it's just just appealing to a massive scene of people with no taste. Can I be less rude? Well, (laughs) no. In terms of being called, ask me why. uh, Where does he ask me why come in? It says, "Ask me why." I'll say, "I love you," and I'm always thinking of you. So I don't know if it if it does relate to the riddle. There are certainly some cryptic things about it that might just be how it's like. (laughs) how it's like bad (laughs) yeah yeah and like and like trying to do smoky robinson but really not getting it this is another thing that struck me about this entire album is that you can hear that they're listening to black musicians Mm -hmm. and then they're not you know you can hear the influence the thing about the beatles that from, from the first song that i've listened to of theirs to the last it's like you can tell that they're trying to emulate a style, yeah. but it's that you could tell that they're trying to. They're not trying all that hard, even. Y- yeah, <laughs> definitely, uh, definitely. Everything that uh, we've heard so far is very much like, uh, you know, so many covers and so many weird attempts. There's something about this British scene. I mean, I was just talking about how. This fucking big British lounge singer was like, let me go to Nashville and do a country album. Like, there was just something about, like, the music culture of this era that was just, like, that was just, like, somehow our style is diffused with these great styles from America, and it's just gonna work. And it didn't. It really doesn't. It's it's bad, and they just had to listen to it because they were British. And somehow it came on over. The next song is Love Me Do. Unfortunately, <laughs> which we do, we don't necessarily have to listen to it again if we feel like we have said our piece with it. I have oh, to listen to this. Do. I'd love to listen to this all of it full. Yeah, so let's listen to Love Me Do. Love me do. Love yeah, well. me do. It's it's the little imperfections that make it like a craft beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like tap water. Really, I feel like the word is clumsy. Oh, sure. Just bonking and clonking. A, 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 a skifflier song than, uh, than, than some of their other stuff that's more to do. Smokey Robinson, for instance. Um, yeah. You can really hear the T-Chess bass. You could you could hear the T chest bass and the seven guitar players. Um, this one was was a big part of again the inconsistencies about what happened on nine eleven sixty two. Uh, with uh, Paul said that George Martin suggested putting harmonica on it, and again that sort of make you wonder like what was the song before there was harmonica on it? Uh, Just bonking and clonking, no wheezing Just- or squeezing. Love me do. It's just sort of a dirge. <laughs> oh, shit. Pioneers of goth rock. Yeah. <laughs> the Beatles. Like, there's also yeah. a version of this song with Pete Best on drums, by the way. So just <laughs> to add to the mess of this whole thing, I don't even think in going through the history. Well, no, this was the one that like they recorded. Pete Bass, and they're like, "This sucks." And then they brought in Ringo, yeah. and they were like, "This also, this also sucks." So they brought in seven in. drummers, <laughs> seven drummers, one T-Test bass player, seven guitarists, one 
wailing vocalist. In attempting to do like a sort of a, a Black American kind of genre play, they circle around the phrase "love me do," but it's it's certainly not in any kind of American parlance. Very true. Persistent rumor was that Brian Epstein, who still owned his family record store, had bulk ordered a large quantity of the single to up its chart ranking. Oh That's my god! Breaking the charts. Yeah, this is their first single, by the way. So, so if you want to fucking wow. talk about that, yeah, these these scoundrels, these, these criminals, these, these Hamburg, Hamburg fucking... Hamburglers. <laughs> the, Lennon explained the best thing was it came into the charts in two days, and everybody thought it was a fiddle because our manager's store sent in these returns, and everybody down south thought, "Aha, he's buying them himself, or he's just fiddling the charts." But he wasn't, fiddling is what he says. Charts. It sounds like he was. It kind of sounds like he was. <laughs> Didn't you just say that he was? Uh, it's it's a persistent rumor that he was. Right. He probably was. If I had to guess, I would say that maybe uh, <laughs> there was some, some fiddling going on on Love Me Do. Maybe that's what was there before the harmonica was a fiddle. <laughs> yeah. Wish. Uh yeah, love me do. Not much to say about it. I would say sort of a sort of an unsung, mm. an unsung. Very good piece of web fiction. The next song is called "P.S. I Love You," and it's another one that we have uh, previously listened to. But it is what we have to say. Yes, these are all blended together at this point. Sure are. They're a little bit the same song. <laughs> yeah, pretty unobjectionable. Yeah, you know, it's got a story to it, which most of these songs do not. <laughs> uh, and yeah. Do you want to Slightly more interesting. Yeah, I like the you, you, you. You, you, you. It's fun. John Lennon has a comment on this song. That's Paul's song. He was trying to write a soldier boy like the Shirelles. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, he wrote that in Germany, or when we were going to and from Hamburg. I might have contributed something. I can't remember anything in particular. <laughs> oh, damn. I just didn't care. Yeah. <laughs> they were just throwing shit out there. Um, I, I mean, we did a whole, a whole, last time we talked about the song over, as I write this letter, send my love to you, which is a, a weird thing to, a couple <laughs> weird things to say in a letter. It's metatextual. Just writing in a letter, send my love to you. <laughs> Won't you? And let me know how you are doing. <laughs> writing a letter about a letter towards the letter, but also towards you. Mm. Send this letter to me. <laughs> Return to sender. Send this letter to you. <laughs> Do not read. <laughs> Do not open. <laughs> Do not open. The next song is uh, Baby It's You. A Baby It's You. You again. What the hell? <laughs> Sonically gross. <laughs> Sonically pretty bad. <laughs> but again, there is that neat little... Uh, little keyboard thing coming in and again that was not done by a beetle it was done by george martin kidding yep how much of the album did the beatles do 
<laughs> the bad stuff. That's what they did. All the bad stuff. This song is a cover. <laughs> no! <laughs> it's a cover of another song by the Shirelles. Oh, man. <laughs> Guys, just listen to the Shirelles. If only they did. Where would we be today? A song written by Burt Bacharach. What? That's a name. Yeah, written by the the, the OG Burt Bacharach. Raindrops keep falling on my head. Yeah, but what about Burt Bacharachs? Baby, it's him. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> it almost seems intentionally bad, this one. Yeah. It does. It's gross. <laughs> Just like all that makes you tense all the muscles in your body for the entire duration. What's the idea there? They're trying to do the Shirelles, and they're like four fucking Hamburg scumbags. <laughs> four dwarves set out to cover the Shirelles. Boy, howdy. We have uh, four songs to go. We're in the home stretch here. See the light. We can, we can see the light at the end of the tunnel. This next song is called Do You Want to Know a Secret? I don't. I, I don't. Maybe a riddle, but... Yeah. Can they present it as a riddle? <laughs> Let's find out. That's right. Not bad. The guitar tone on this one. Yeah, this is a this is a George song. You know, I feel like on the later albums, it's really obvious where the George and Ringo songs are. But I keep just like finding out in media res that these are George and Ringo songs and being like, they sound exactly the same. The interesting thing about this song, this is another source of dispute in the band. And as as we established last time, there could very well be um, something to these sources of dispute. So the thing here is that according to Paul... This was a 50-50 collaboration written specifically for George to sing. And according to John, he wrote the whole thing himself and decided afterwards that it was the best fit for George. What? They didn't even know. (laughs) They didn't decide anything. They didn't know the the secret. They might not have even been awake when they wrote these things. They entered a fugue state over the course of that 13-hour session and just They were in a gothic dirge state when they composed all this quote-unquote so-called music. I'm starting to think they didn't even have a secret. What? (laughs) No, they got it. Well, the, the secret presented on this song is I'm in love with you, which they say many other times on this album. There must have been another secret. There must be, but I, I don't know. Maybe there's the fact that they keep repeating, I love you, I'm in love with you over and over, is maybe to say okay. that, that, is, that that is a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, like some kind of numerological significance. <laughs> yeah, to I love you. Mm, it's the notes they don't play. And they don't play a lot. George and John oh, both yeah. played acoustic. George and John both played acoustic guitars in different channels. On the stereo mix, Harrison's guitar is on the right, and Lennon's guitar is on the left, <laughs> which makes it sound like 
a little better than most of the other songs on this album because there's guitar on both sides. Yeah. I, I don't know. The secret, right? Do you want to know a secret? Do you promise not to tell? That line, by the way, is lifted from a song from Snow White. Oh my god. Huh. Yeah. There's not an original song on here. Another there cover from one. Esteemed The Beatles. The bridge says, I've known the secret for a week or two. Nobody knows, just we two. Great, great writing, first of all, but <laughs> I mean, it could, you know, I mean, to, to speak literally about it, it, you know, I think the idea is that uh, it's like, this is, this is love is a secret, and it's like, you know, started about a week or two ago, and it's just like between the two of them, and no one really knows that they're together. Uh, but could imply something else. Also, <laughs> I don't know. Some other secret that only happened a week ago, like yeah, pushing the listener into the well. Oh, and I, I pushed you down secret. the well. Oh, do do do. <laughs> February nineteen sixty-three. I'm trying to figure out if anything happened a week or two before <laughs> they recorded. I mean, uh, when did they write the song? They, oh, that's a good question. Um, written uh, by Lennon McCartney. Uh, well, they have this dispute over when it was written. They're covering their tracks. Exactly. Hmm. There's no riddle. There's there's a crime cleanup. I mean that that's what we were kind of angling toward the in the last episode. That covering up their crimes. That the Beatles as a band were a front for for whatever crimes they were doing. Precisely. Perhaps. Murder. Tell me, when was John F. Kennedy assassinated? November of sixty-three. Uh, but Robert Frost died in January. <laughs> You're kidding. <laughs> January twenty-ninth. Yeah. They assassinate Robert Frost by pushing him down a well. <laughs> they assassinate eighty-eight-year-old Robert Frost. <laughs> it's the perfect crime. Oh, it wouldn't be difficult. Whose well was he down? Poor fella. The next song is called A Taste of Honey. Yum. I love the sound of that. Culinary Beatles. That was actually very interesting. Let's play Is It a Cover? Yes. Yes. It is a cover of a song, um, originally an instrumental song from the play A Taste of Honey, but uh, recorded by Herb Alpert. And uh, Herb Alpert, Herb Alpert, yeah, I've heard of him. I don't know what he did. Yeah, he did Spanish Fleet. That's yeah. That's <laughs> that's precisely where I know that name from. Things start to come together. The instrumental version was uh, a success from Herb Alpert. A vocal version was first recorded by Billy D. Williams. Hmm. Ghostbusters? No, Billy D. Williams is Lando Calrissian. <laughs> yeah, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he recorded the first version of A Taste of Honey, and then it was recorded very successfully by Lenny Welch, who also covered that uh, song earlier in the album. Um, 
he had a, a big recording too. And then the Beatles uh, put it on their album. Barbara Streisand performed the song as part of her cabaret act during 62 and recorded it in January 63 for her debut album, which won the Grammy for Album of the Year. Damn. Unlike the Beatles. Maybe the most uh, traveled song <laughs> on this album. Some some interesting <laughs> stuff going on, I guess. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I do think most of that is in the lyrics, but uh, this is an early sort of uh, country tilt for them. I guess there's another song in this album that was also like that, but, like, I, I guess any bit of, like, experimentation on this album is kind of refreshing. Yeah, it is. And it's a lot more late Beatles than the rest of what we've been hearing. It's true. It's true. It's like a different tempo, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's just sort of like vaguely distinct. They do the little doo-doo-doo. Doo-doo-doo. We have two songs to go. We're so close. The next song is called, let me check again, There's a Place. Is there? Could be another clue. The place is his mind. <gasps> it's his mind. I was trying to parse the lyrics of the song, and I had realized how utterly exhausted I'd become by this whole venture. This song, though, it's once again, it's much more polished and kind of just better than everything on the A side. Like, like the sound quality for some reason seems to be a lot better on the B side. Yeah. Well, we're kind of listening to. Uh, unidentified YouTube rips, so who knows? No, I mean these are. I I, I think what we're getting is from the same uh, the same remaster. Seems like uh, I guess we don't know for sure, but uh, and I guess this album was recorded in succession, I believe. So the part that uh, what what George Martin said about how like they worked all day and they you know kept improving, it does sound like maybe that could have been the case. On account of they did not know how to play their instruments when they started. <laughs> they yeah, were the figuring out. Was just a warm up. <laughs> yeah. So, do you guys think this song was a cover? Yeah. No. It is not. Huh. Well, okay. Are we sure? John Are Lennon says sure? this song. You ready for a bad quote? John Lennon says of this song, uh, "There's a place was my attempt at a sort of Motown black thing." Oh, John. God. Bad dude. Oh, <laughs> bad no. guy. You can't say that. <laughs> you can't. Pretty bad. Music critic Ian McDonald speculated that he was referring to the Isley Brothers, but comments that this influence is not readily apparent on the recording. <laughs> so just <laughs> fucking shot in the dark. I don't know. The Isley Brothers. <laughs> Oh, man. We talk about how you can tell they're trying to do Motown on a lot of songs on this album. No. Not here. Knowing that they're trying, <laughs> they really don't nail it, do they? <laughs> no. They don't. It sound, it, I could tell that this was a song that they wrote because of mostly because of like the A-B-A-B kind of rhyme structure. There's a place. The, this is There's another. A place. <laughs> There's a yeah, fucking. 
This is another actually song that there are disputes about because, again, Lennon claims that he wrote the whole thing and that he was trying to do a Motown thing. And uh, Paul says that he remembers co-writing the song (laughs) with John uh, at his childhood home. His childhood home. But with a bias towards being his idea, (laughs) being John's idea. This guy, what, this guy wants fifty-one percent of the royalties. Paul says that he owned a copy of the soundtrack album to West Side Story, and oh, that what? the phrase "there's a the, the phrase there's a place" comes from "there's a place for us." No original elements. <laughs> Not one note of this record. Sort of a sampled album. <laughs> a little bit, yeah. Sort of a. Uh, now that's what I call music of its day. Yeah. There's one more song. I'm in agony. <laughs> this is the, the last title. one. It is called Twist and Shout. Oh, yeah. <laughs> is it now? They sound almost as exhausted as we do. <laughs> the, the Beatles the Beatles' shameful collage of appropriation in its full glory yeah do we need to play the is this a cover game no yeah this song is a cover yeah originally recorded by the top notes but popularized by the Isley Brothers in 62 yeah like it couldn't this... have been them. Yeah, it's no, no fucking way. It's too much of a song. (laughs) It's too complete. Yeah, it's to completion. Um, I I guess I like it. Me too. I guess I do like the vocal performance here. The Beatles grasping at a sound that cannot be theirs. Yeah. They, I mean, just screaming. It really is the desperation of it that sort of makes it interesting. Um, let me, let me. I had a good, I had a good uh, John Lennon quote about that here. Uh, he said, "This is the quote from John Lennon: The last song nearly killed me. My voice wasn't the same for a long time after. Every time I swallowed, it was like sandpaper. <laughs> I was always bitterly ashamed of it." <laughs> Oh my god. Because I could sing better than that. But now it doesn't bother me. You can hear that I'm just a frantic guy doing his best. Oh, emo. Emo. <laughs> a little emo. He's just a frantic guy. Um, I mean, there's something so striking about that. That he, that he was so ashamed of this take. And, and like... This was really the first that, like, today is looked back on very fondly. And I I think it was something that maybe, like, this was a moment where the Beatles as rock stars kind of became a thing, where they were, again, sort of in a boy band space before that, and they very clearly did not intend to make this song like this at all. (laughs) No. They just, like, at the end of a 13-hour session, they sort of... Frantic guy. The frantic guys, these four frantic folk, 
the uh, the central conflict of this whole album is that between the rival impulses within the Beatles to produce goth rock and emo. <laughs> <laughs> These two dormant impulses. I reflect on this album. I, uh, what a what a bizarre fucking thing. That this is their this is their like boy band album, right? This is no. Uh, Mersey Beat, uh, you know, catering to teenage girls uh, record for the teens specifically, directly uh, laser focused at the teens. And it's so flat in a weird way. I feel like other than a couple of moments, I mean, Twist and Shout is obviously, I feel like the first and last song are really like incredibly high energy compared to everything else on the album. Like I said, it's like morose and uh, jangly and is a a very weird listen. And, you know, uh, songs start the same and, you know, aren't really about anything most of the time. Yeah, not good. (laughs) Not a good album. Not a good album, I'd say. Anthony Fantano rating not good. Out of 10, yeah. So, well, first, before we before we get into closing things, I wanted to look into how this album did. I'm gonna do. Please, please me at the top of the UK album charts in May of 1963 and remained there for 30 weeks before being replaced by the Beatles' second album, The Beatles. No, no. <laughs> it was the number one album until the Beatles did another album. <laughs> Get these guys out of here. Get them off the charts. <laughs> Get them out of there. Escort these gentlemen out. This was surprising because at the time, the UK album charts tended to be dominated by film soundtracks. What? Yeah. yeah I, you know, if you look at the Billboard charts, a lot of the big albums were soundtracks in like the 50s and 60s also. Um, but I think that speaks to the thing I was saying about how generally bands aimed at teens didn't make LPs, and so the Beatles just sort of like... Yeah, they tapped a new market, exactly. It was the first non-soundtrack album to spend more than one year consecutively in the top ten in the UK. Jesus. What a diseased people. 62 weeks. This record run of consecutive weeks in the top ten for a debut album stood until April of 2013. (laughs) When Emily Sande's album, Our Version of Events, achieved a 63rd consecutive week. Unnatural. I've never heard of that artist before in my life. She's good, but she's very much has not crossed over. (laughs) So yeah, this album was a big hit in the UK. It It was never released. It was eventually released in the US, but it never had like a like a first run in the US. Released in the U.S. as in released from captivity from a cave. Yeah. It was released from captivity in the U.S. by Capitol Records in 1987. Unleashed like a scourge upon the U.S. Ran roughshod mm-hmm. over the U.S. As we move forward, as we march on, uh, what do you? let's talk about what our clue is <laughs> and where, where we the riddle. Emo. Here's the thing. There's still something striking to me. You know, we talked about the thing about youth, you don't give a shit, and how they seem to sort of be, like, talking directly to the teens and trying to engage them with the riddle. 
uh, do you want to know a secret? Um, and all this, you know, I love you, I'm in love with you over and over. There's still something pretty striking to me about the the the, the first song calling directly to a teen and saying, you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay, there's like an undercurrent of darkness in, in the in the tone and also the, the morals of this album, the constant ripping off of riffs and songs, the creepy references to teens and the... Statutory rape, etc., etc. The, yeah, the, so forth, also yeah. the darkness within their minds. Yeah, they're, they're twisted minds. Yeah, they're beautiful, dark, twisted fantasy. Um, twisting and crowding minds. We'll see where it goes, but we had talked last time about the idea that it could be a cover-up for, you know, a murder most foul or some very flashy crime, but I think we are maybe seeing in this album that the crimes might be stuff that is real and is, like, right in front of us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Statutory rape, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so forth, yeah. It's a commentary on the potential uh, evil of mankind. My thought is, um, there's a song called Do You Want to Know a Secret? And I feel like we have to pull something from that if we're going to pull something. Must be something, yeah. So let's look at the lyrics from that. You'll You'll never know how much I really love you. You'll never know how much I really care. And that's the thing that keeps coming back, that idea of, like, of, like, how much... I love you, whatever that means, being like that's a, uh, a secret or an esoteric thing. Uh-huh. That's a Justin Bieber lyric. They ripped that off too? They literally ripped it off from the beads, yeah. These cretins. These cretinous beetles. These beatniks. Um, yeah, I feel like there's just something on this album, it seems like they're really angling you towards the idea that somehow... I love you, or how much I love you, or I'm in love with you, is a clue. We need a quantity. <laughs> we need to know how much. How much? How much? How much? How much does the the singer of the you know whoever happens to sing on a Beatles song love the listener, the teens? Oh boy. <laughs> oh man. Oh boy. Oh boy. It's really. <laughs> Well, it's gonna be equivalent to how much money they're laundering. I'd wager. Ooh, true. True. Could be. Don't quote me on that. And I guess next time uh, we're going to continue on our trek and uh, see if we can't uncover what 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 all this means. Yeah. In a way, on Twist and Shout, he's really straining each muscle into you. I was gonna say that! <laughs> yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? <laughs> He's straining each muscle and sinew. He's twisting and shouting every muscle and sinew. Oh. He's twisting, and that's, oh, boy. And that's the thing about twist and shout is it's like, what you should do is twist and shout. It's so visceral. I feel like twisting could be something. I mean, maybe there'll be twists in, in the next chapter of our, well, of our journey of a thousand beetles. Sam and Leon, this has been uh, a great conversation, I think. It's funny because we've been on call for like three hours, but I think with having listened to the Beatles album, this uh, might be a relatively short episode. <laughs> um, right. But uh, yeah, I thank you so much for, 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 for joining once again. Very happy to join. 
easy for you to say. I'm being consumed by darkness right now. Oh, aren't we just? Everyone who's been listening so far and uh, has not had to join in this in this tournament with us, unless you, like, stop and start at each point to listen to the Beatles songs, which maybe I'd recommend. Maybe you should listen along with us. Uh, but thank you for listening if you want to support the show you can subscribe to my Substack, or you can just share it with your friends share it on social media let people know that you love it one of the best things you can do and i will see you the folks at home next week bye-bye I disagree, I disagree.